Hello, and welcome to Scanner Today's Let's Talk AI podcast, where you can hear from AI researchers about what's actually going on with AI and what is just clickbait headlines. This week, we'll look at the state of AI for diagnosing COVID-19 cases, and then we'll discuss some recent work on AI fairness and the connections between multiple academic and industry groups in Seattle with Israel's AI scene. I am Andrei Karenkov, a third-year PhD student at the Stanford Vision and Learning Lab. I focus mostly on learning algorithms for robotic manipulation. And with me is my co-host. I'm Sharon, a third-year PhD student in the machine learning group here at Stanford, working with Andrew Ng. I do research on generative models, improving generalization of neural networks, and applying machine learning to tackling the climate crisis. And Sharon, I gather you've had a bit of a busy week so far because right now the uh, Eichler 2020 conference is going on, the Conference on Learning Representations, which is a big AI conference. And for the first time, it is fully online, fully virtual. Uh, So how has that been going? How have you enjoyed attending it as a fully virtual conference? It's been really, really cool, actually. I really enjoy the fact that they put up uh, a lot of the uh, talks up online beforehand, and so you can watch it at your own leisure. Uh, I also am co-organizing uh, a workshop on climate change using AI, and uh, we actually have it as a five-day workshop, uh, and having each day being focused towards some focus area for climate change. Uh, and so that's been very exciting, but also uh, fairly exhausting, actually, catering to all the time zones out there uh, and coordinating all all sorts of Zoom calls. So uh, doing things in real time, I think, has been quite challenging, but Actually, one cool benefit from all of this is that the panelists, when we do have panels, start to be more comfortable and talk amongst themselves a bit more than in an in-person setting when there's an audience before them. And I think people get a little bit nervous there. Uh, So I think panelists have been less nervous and started to talk amongst themselves. And it's been fantastic to see that. Interesting. So have you been spending even more of your time on Zoom and various video calls than in prior weeks? More than I would like. (laughs) Zoom is, uh, as someone said, they are Zoomed out by now. (laughs) Uh, But I prefer Zoom over all the other possible platforms. Though Slack's platform actually is quite, quite nice since I feel like now the Zoom etiquette is no longer needing a video, your video to be on, uh, since people are probably descending more and more into pajama wear. Uh, So I think that uh, these Slack calls have actually been really nice uh, when doing work because Slack actually has this cool ability where you can draw on the person's screen who's sharing their screen. Um, So that's been pretty cool. That's good to know. Actually, I didn't know that. Um, So enough about iClear. Please check out the videos online and uh, learn more about the cool research being done at iClear this year. Uh, Now on to our topic of COVID-19 with AI. Uh, We will dive into a paper titled Prediction Models for Diagnosis and Prognosis of COVID-19 Infection, Systematic Review and Critical Appraisal. So while many researchers have rushed to help with combating the COVID-19 crisis using AI tools, uh, this paper has shown that dozens of those models 
are actually very biased. Um, they do not consider patient data that is representative of populations infected by the virus. They use poorly annotated data. They don't benchmark uh, against established machine learning models. They also found that these models only predicted patient outcomes uh, on those who have either died or recovered from the virus, um, but not those who remain symptomatic, so only a subset of those with COVID-19. So basically, there, there has been quite a bit of criticism, and this paper did a systematic review uh, of all of these models uh, to get an understanding of where their faults lie. So what's really interesting is that in a commentary that accompanied this paper in the British Medical Journal, the editors actually said that the models uh, were so uniformly poor, quote unquote, that they that none of them can be recommended for clinical use. Yeah, so pretty, pretty interesting results from the survey that really showcase that as we rush to try and help with AI and develop models for diagnosis, there's a lot of ways to get things wrong and it can actually do more harm than good to try and rush it out. So we've, we've talked a lot about how various uh, groups are trying to develop models, but this review is quite interesting for actually evaluating them more closely and showing all these flaws that seem pretty common. I wonder, uh, Sharon, as someone sort of aware of AI medicine more than I am, uh, are these kinds of flaws in AI research for diagnosis from images kind of something you've seen before? Uh, have there been other surveys you've seen before evaluating the state of art? I haven't seen systematic surveys so much as uh, papers when they are peer-reviewed. Uh, have significantly fewer of these flaws, though these flaws do exist, and hopefully people actually do present these as limitations to their work. Um, but very often, uh, a peer-reviewed journal would prevent a lot of these flaws uh, from from going through, from being actually published, as opposed to, I think most of these papers were probably um, published in non-peer review uh, avenues since they wanted to get something out very, very quickly to help with the situation. There's a recent article in the journal Cell um, from a Chinese group uh, using 6,000 chest CTs, and these have been released to the public uh, with about 2,000 positive COVID cases, 2,000 that are other pneumonia cases, so that could be mixed up with COVID and that we need to make sure that we can differentiate well, and about 2,000 that are uh, normal, so those who, do not, who, are, who don't have any of these, who don't have any of these uh, pathologies. Uh, so this is just coming out now, and this is clearly peer-reviewed as it's being published in Cell, uh, but it's obviously taking time to go through peer review, and it takes time to, to mitigate against these flaws um, and to get reviewer feedback. Hey, you need to actually make sure the distribution you are training on is representative of, uh, of, your, of your test distribution, for example, um, or of what you're claiming in your paper. Yeah, so as you say, this is a good kind of example of why peer review is quite important, why we need research to sometimes be slow. Uh, actually, to be a little more specific, this survey looked at papers from PubMed, Inbase, uh, which included uh, papers on Ovid, BioArchive, MedArchive, and Archive, which are preprint 
websites. So these are places you can publish research without necessarily having it be peer reviewed. And the survey includes papers that were released between early January and late March. So on the one hand, I guess it's not too surprising they're flawed because researchers were working with the data they could have at the time and they were releasing it um, on sites like Archive to get it out as soon as possible. Uh, on the other hand, I guess it's interesting to question whether it's even useful to rush things out if ultimately it turns out that they have these critical flaws and uh, they cannot be operationalized. Yes, it's always this tension between speed and accuracy. Um, ideally, we could have both, but sometimes doing speed means um, maybe neglecting certain things and also having less data right, available in the beginning. I should hope that these papers do state that they cannot be for clinical use, but that they are hopefully pushing some kind of result that might be helpful for other researchers moving forward. That's my hope, but I, I'm not sure. Yeah, it's at least this can serve as kind of an example and a moment to reflect and to update how we do things. Um, this particular survey also has a recommendation that machine learning researchers should adopt what is known as the tripod checklist, which is a 22 point checklist that is uh, meant to improve prediction models for diagnosis and medicine. So essentially it is kind of a, a best practices checklist to make sure that you don't have bias in your data uh, and things like that, uh, developed by physicians and data scientists. So now that we have this uh, result showing that uh, many who rushed to get models out right away made some crucial mistakes, maybe the set of best practices can be changed so that by default people avoid these mistakes. Although, of course, peer review also needs to be there to catch it. Yes, definitely. I'm looking at the set of checklist items in Tripod, and some of them are a bit, uh, I would say, broad, and it's hard to say exactly what whether it would help. Um, but I imagine that some of these would actually help as you go through, you realize, oh, I actually didn't think about... Uh, I didn't actually think about this. So, for example, one of them is clearly define all predictors used in developing the multivariable prediction model, including how and when they were measured. And perhaps you forgot, oh, when they were measured, you know, oh, I didn't put that in. So I think that this framework could help with jogging uh, people's memories as they add these details into the paper, um, as well as hopefully thinking through the limitations as they think through this checklist. I think in core AI machine learning research, we have some of those checklists in place for, for example, submitting papers to NeurIPS, you have to go through a checklist of various things about your model and whether or not you're going to release your code. Um, so, uh, and whether or not you included, for example, um, the number of runs you did for something uh, and uh, like the standard deviations and stuff like that. So I, I think like that that does exist in the core ML community. And it's really interesting to see one for something applied here. Yeah, yeah. So I guess on the whole, this is yet another example that AI isn't some sort of super advanced thing that just always works. We need to be careful as practitioners 
And it's not as if, you know, AI is human level and can automatically avoid these mistakes. And really, you need to be uh, careful with the data. But to move on to another topic, uh, we've had enough COVID talk yet again. Uh, next, we're going to talk about this article from a medium covering an interview or a discussion by Sandra Watcher on why fairness in VU cannot be automated. So Sandra Watcher is a faculty associated at the Berkman Clyde Center, a visiting professor at Howard Law School, uh, and an associate professor and senior research fellow in law and ethics and AI. So essentially a person who has a lot of credentials in this conversation on ethics and law and AI. And so the, the Berkman Klein Center actually released an interview with this professor uh, on her thoughts about AI regulation and why fairness cannot be automated. And the short version, which is quite interesting, is that uh, the law, it turns out, is written to be pretty contextual and pretty flexible. So one quote is that the Court of Justice does not stick to consistent methods or metrics for assessing non-discrimination cases. In fact, the case law in European legislation embraces what we call contextual equality. Laws and case law are purposely agile and fluid to offer appropriate legal responses in a constantly changing society. Um, so coming from someone with some expertise in this, uh, it seems like a very interesting thing to point out. And so I wonder, Sharon, have you seen things like this, notions about this on why fairness metrics cannot be automated? Because it's definitely new to me. I definitely think that what she is stating here is very valid in the sense that AI right now, especially uh, supervised learning, requires a pretty well-defined ground truth to do well. Uh, and even when that ground truth is slightly shaken, we have to take all these different turns to try to make it work. For example, in medicine, we one doctor actually cannot give the ground truth oftentimes because doctors disagree with each other. So we take perhaps uh, assessments from three different doctors, eight different doctors, 10 different doctors for the same x-ray, for example, uh, and get their sense of what is the diagnosis here? Of course, that's. I know that sounds a little bit worrisome, but that is actually the reality of how we interpret things. And this is interpreting something that does actually have an underlying ground truth for science, right? Like this person does have some kind of uh, pathology, for example, like pneumonia. But it's. But we would have to go through doctors, and they disagree. And even that, we have to consider. Hey, do we take the average of what the doctors say? Do we take the mode? Do we weight the doctors based on their expertise? You know, like, how do we really combine this to supervise the um, AI algorithm here? Here, what uh, Watchster is saying is that we can't do that when things are highly contextual uh, and require, in that context, just a large amount of information, so large uh, that it is hard to encode that to the AI from a human expertise um, and that it relies on intuition and all these sorts of things that are hard to encode um, and then thus hard to give a ground truth, uh, especially as these systems evolve over time. And this definitely makes me think about one talk that I actually watched today at iClear from Jan LeCun, who is the recent Turing Award winner 
in uh, for his work in AI, uh, foundational AI. Uh, and he basically said that the way neural networks, deep learning really aimed at now, they, these systems are very deterministic. But then he believes that the future is self-supervised. And we talked about self-supervision a bit in previous episodes, but essentially it's the model learning from itself um, and learning from various aspects of uh, the data it's been given already by itself uh, and creating models like latent variable models that are much more dynamic and um, are not as deterministic. And so what uh, Sandra Walker is saying here really reminds me of that in terms of this is the direction, hopefully, that AI will take such that we can potentially start to aid in some of these choices, maybe, unless we think as humans, we never want this thing to be automated. Yeah, yeah. So to that point of there being a lot of data to consider uh, in making a decision, one of the points raised in this interview uh, to quote is that many of the concepts fundamental to bringing a claim, such as the composition of a disadvantage and advantage group, the severity and type of harm suffered, and requirements for the relevance and admissibility of evidence, require normative or political choices to be made by the judiciary on a case-by-case basis. So even the evidence admitted needs some human review. Uh, so it also ties in to the medical uh, uh, the medical context in that the human professional needs to interact and work with the AI system when making a decision about data and it's uh, the AI's output and it cannot just be fully automated. Uh, I also Wachter in this interview is making kind of two points. One, that the regulations, the law itself, needs to be updated a little bit to be less contextual, to uh, to be able to allow for some regulation, uh, but also that we need flexibility and we need to still be able to take things case by cases to some extent and not take it too far. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I do have one less. Okay, so it's great that we have experts like this thinking about thing, these topics. Uh, it definitely reminds me of what... A friend of mine who uh, does have a law degree um, uh, was telling me about that when he does approach people and first talk about what AI could do for law, uh, people get really nervous and think of all sorts of these biases. Uh, but of course, when he starts talking to someone and he begins his conversation with how how biased humans are, uh, then he transitions to how AI can potentially mitigate some of that bias, then people are very receptive to integrating AI. So it also is how we frame what AI is going to do and what AI's role is. Um, and it will be, I think, challenging, as Wachter points out, in comparing how like what a human does versus what an AI does and which one is more biased. I think, I think that'll be very, very, very difficult to quantify. Um, but enough about uh, ethics and the meta discussion around that, perhaps um, diving deeper into surveillance. Uh, so what is interesting here is that there is a, a Seattle Times article called A Tale of Two AI Cities, the Seattle Connection to Israel Surveillance Network. So what's really interesting here is that while uh you might be aware that uh, countries such as Israel are deploying AI for sort of 
doing surveillance for their citizens to curb the spread of coronavirus, you might not be so, so aware that Seattle and Israel's uh, AI ecosystems actually have very close ties uh, as a result of Microsoft and Amazon uh, acquiring several Israeli startups uh, and having strong academic connections with uh, a Seattle AI-based institute, AI2. For example, the article uh, says, quote, to get into Israel from Palestine, facial recognition systems installed at Quilandia and 26 other checkpoints last summer have drawn the ire of human rights advocates. The facial scanners were developed by Israeli artificial intelligence security startup AnyVision, which has ties with Redmond-based Microsoft. Microsoft's venture capital fund M12 came under fire for participating in a $74 million investment in the AI security company last June. AnyVision has not responded to repeated requests. So basically, uh, Seattle is a home to a number of academic and industry groups, which have very, very close ties with the Israeli AI ecosystems. And this seems to be spurring the adoption of AI surveillance technology worldwide. And not surprisingly, this is causing controversy. So while these AI systems for surveillance are being deployed in Israel, they're not being deployed in the U.S., but they have these very, very close ties. Yeah. So we've talked a bunch about Clearview and how it's developing uh, facial recognition tech in the U.S. And I suppose this article points out that uh, there are additional companies in Israel working on this. So they have developed these uh, checkpoint scanners and there's some worry that this will lead to larger scale surveillance. And although this is just saying that there are ties, there are connections between these large companies like Microsoft and these firms in Israel, I suppose it is interesting to note that there is this kind of network and presumably having the ties does lead to influence and that if there is more development of surveillance in Israel, it might make it easier to spread in the U.S. as well. I wonder, uh, Sharon, were you aware that uh, Israel has such a large um, number of AI companies and is developing so much new tech? I actually did, mainly because of ICML last year. Or was it ICML? Oh, no, sorry. When I, I Okay, redo. <laughs> I actually did because of a conference called UAI, Uncertainty in AI, last year. Where, that I attended in Israel, in Tel Aviv. Uh, and that's when I learned about all of these Israeli uh, startups and AI research being done there. And there's quite a bit of AI research uh, being done uh, in Israel. And I think I, every now and then, am surprised that finding a company on Crunchbase that is uh, based in Israel. And I think I've been seeing more and more of that. But I think that trip really solidified, oh, this is a big hub for AI. And uh, they had actually requested that uh, Andrew Ng, my advisor, speak at their large conference, their uh, nationwide conference um, about AI. And I, I just didn't realize the extent to which they were an AI hub. Yeah, the extent is also new to me. Uh, although, fun fact, I used to live in Israel. I was, I was there for seven wow. years in elementary school and I still have family there. 
So I was aware that Tel Aviv is a tech hub. Uh, there's a lot of software engineers and, and startups in Tel Aviv. But this article notes that in 2018, AI companies raised nearly 40% of all venture capital investments in the nation of Israel, according to a Startup Nation Central report. So um, it is pretty interesting to see that there is such a large amount of industry activity in Israel. And because there's also ties to Seattle, it's worth kind of keeping an eye on it and being aware of how the developments there might influence what's happening here. One interesting uh, fact point out by, by the article was that last fall, Microsoft actually hired the former U.S. Attorney General Eric Holder to audit any vision in Israeli AI uh, security startup that we mentioned um, that the uh, venture capital fund in Microsoft gave $74 million for. And they uh, they did this because they were concerned about the company's monitoring of Palestinians and found that it, quote, does not currently power a mass surveillance program in the West Bank that has been alleged in media reports. So Microsoft did care about this very much. Uh, and this is according to a March 27th statement. But still, Microsoft's M2 declared that it would divest its shares in any vision because it can't exercise oversight or control of the technology. Which I suppose is worth noting in the sense that uh, if Microsoft or Amazon were investing in surveillance tech in Israel and its development, there's already been a lot of scrutiny on what companies are doing here in the U.S. So we should, of course, be mindful that AI is international now and these companies are international and they can uh, they can influence the development of AI in other ways. Uh, and another thing this article notes is that along with the strong industry ties, there's also a lot of academic collaborations of AI research, uh, for instance, between the University of Washington and the Israeli institutions Bar Ilan University and Tel Aviv University. Uh, so those are also hubs of research. So in general, there is this relationship that's, I suppose, just is interesting to note that uh, AI research and AI development is pretty international, and now ties are becoming closer between different large cities. And with that, thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of Skynet Today's Let's Talk AI podcast. You can find the articles we discussed here today and subscribe to our weekly newsletter with similar ones at skynettoday.com. Subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts and don't forget to leave us a rating if you like the show. Be sure to tune in next week. 